Greetings, friends of the great beyond. This is your ghost, I mean host, ready to take you behind the veil of terror and leftist critique. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. Um, which is one of the reasons why I've always been tr- suspicious of traditional forms of green politics, seeing them as basically not not willing to go and far too willing to just go yeah there should probably be a lot fewer people yeah and you know if if they die that's fine they're also like it's it's such austerity madness right it's like yeah, oh yeah, like, absolutely. like shame on you for driving your car or taking that plane flight to see your family let's not talk about exxon yeah exactly exactly this fact that you know the vast majority of consumerist choices on an individualized level don't really do anything or can't really do anything. You know, there are a couple of things that are that are really important, but like the fact that everybody started using plastic bags, yeah, that's good, but that isn't going to be the thing that finally goes, the climate is saved! Right, yeah, like a lot of this stuff is going to wind up being important, right? Because, I mean, like, there, there is no room for disposable plastic bags in some kind of eco-future. So relearning yeah. how, to, how to navigate these environments is useful, and like cars. Car, cars are going to be made obsolete by the environmental crisis. Shrug. Uh, shrug, because cars are terrible. Yeah, yeah but, but the, um, the solution and, isn't to, like, bad. shame. No, the problem is that urban planning in cities are designed around individualized instead of mass forms of transit, yep. which is a, a failure of capitalism's planning. It's not the failure of individuals who've made certain choices with the best resources they had available. Absolutely. And I think that, I think that ties in... That's to Ash's mother. catchphrase. Know, right? <laughs> Acknowledging John being correct is in fact my catchphrase. <laughs> and you, you were going to say that ties in well, with... I think, it, I think it, 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 uh, it ties in with Mother, and it ties in with uh, some of the things that we didn't talk about <laughs> in the previous episode. Um, it's specifically that this movie is deeply individualistic. Oh yeah, completely. Like, like every 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 uh, kind of major thematic plot point of of this film reinforces the idea that it, it collective action and and any kind of collective movement is not only futile but it's also disgusting and completely abhorrent. Like like any any yeah. kind of collective collectivization in this film is like. It's 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 like the the rabid fans that are ripping apart the house to get souvenirs. It's the um, vaguely foreign uh, domestic terrorist people who are like executing uh, people with bags over their heads or throwing women into cages. You know, like th- this is seen as popular collectivization by the text of the film. Whereas like individualism is, you know, like crafting artisanal paints for your little house and writing sweet little poems. And generally being pure and wonderful and good. I mean, it's. I think it's. It comes back to the massive failure of auteur theory, right? This this notion that certain films can be the product of the aesthetic sense of the great man, who kind of gives it life and gives it shape, when in fact, actually, filmmaking is a deeply communist form of art. It's collective. It depends upon 
a divert, like from each according to their abilities, mm-hmm. right? It it depends it depends upon everybody working together to, towards the achieving of a collective goal. But very frequently, especially in the Hollywood industry, it gets boiled down to being the product of oh, like, well, he's a genius. He's the genius who makes it all happen. And it's like no, that isn't that that isn't how film works. You know, film is a collective endeavor. It's something that is done um, as a team. But, you know, it's no surprise then that Aronofsky, who's always been one of the directors who's most in love with himself and the idea of himself as a great artist, would make a film that's so deeply opposed to the notion of any kind of collective practice. I think that really speaks to the, like, broken liberal ideology of this film. And, and, and you know, you're absolutely right. Like, when you make any art, you know, it, it, re- it requires countless workers that have been alienated and unseen. You know, like if you're even if you're a writer, like, you know, odds are today you're writing on a laptop, you know, some someone. Yeah, exactly. Countless workers and countless minds scattered across the globe had to assemble that. If you're a painter, you know, you're working on a canvas, you're working with paints. It's the same situation. And and if you're on a film like this isn't Darren Aronofsky's mother, this is literally hundreds of people's mother hundreds of people hundreds yeah, of people hundreds of people working for weeks and that, that's not weeks. even that's not even counting all of the systems necessary to support something like mother right like that's just considering the people who like you know the the, the set designers costuming makeup effects uh you know photography people who worked on principal casting stuff like that but then you also have like all of the secretaries who keep all of these independent companies afloat. You have all of the fuck you plane. You're gonna ruin my audio. <laughs> but you have you have you have all, all of the people, you know, you know, working kind of uncredited jobs that keep these studios afloat. You have all of the people who like you know, like the the catering companies, the laundry company that washes uniforms. And then like yeah, yeah. even you know you can ex- you can keep abstracting this. Like you you have like the the people who work in the theaters like the local electrician who keeps the theater together you know like like this does this doesn't exist without mass centrally planned collective labor i think this brings us onto a bigger problem though which is the problem of class consciousness mm-hmm. in in yes. postmodern capitalism right because how do you join those uh groups how do you join that uh collective you know army of people who put this thing into the world together because it is so nebulous and because it is so heavily focused upon the idea of the great man there has to be a way of kind of moving beyond that and actually creating something that understands that there is no such thing as uh isolated genius which that's just a that's a comforting romantic myth we tell ourselves about the creative process yeah yeah absolutely and i think that you know, like, like, like this, this is, this is absolutely a capitalist sham. You know, like, like, even, yeah. even, even in some, like, I guess, like, primitivist sense, like, the, the, the loner genius concept still doesn't work. You know, you still require society. And, and if you were able to, like, theorize a fully alienated loner genius who is, like, in the middle of the woods, hand-whittling pencils and writing the greatest novels ever written, what, what's, the, what's the value of that if it doesn't engage with society? I mean, and here's the thing, like, Aronofsky has got that before. Have you seen The Wrestler? No, no, I have not. As a, The Wrestlers are... I, I am not super well-versed in Aronofsky films. I think I've seen two. 
Okay, so The Wrestler is a super interesting film, especially in comparison with this, because it's about Mickey, uh, Mickey Rourke's character, who is this kind of old, old school wrestler who uh, used to be really famous when professional wrestling was back in its heyday, and is now like doing nickel and dime gigs at like local high schools, and is like getting old and can't deal with the injuries quite as well anymore, and he has a heart condition, and it's going to kill him. Uh, but but he chooses to, when he has the choice to walk away, he chooses to go back to the ring. Uh, and that's that's where he dies at the end of the mm-hmm. film. Because it's only in the context of that collective, communal act that his art makes any kind of sense to him. So, like, I mean, maybe maybe I'm being a bit too generous to Aronofsky here, but I think he's got it beforehand. He's understood what it, what it actually means to be an artist who is involved in a collective creative act but i don't think he i don't think he does any more maybe he's just got too enamored with his own genius because he was heading that way with black swan right which is all about the prima ballerina yeah the the, the death in the pursuit of perfection which really is a is another theme that plays out in mother right immolation burning burning up uh, this this woman is the catalyst for creativity. And it, um, so so he's gradually moved away from this kind of understanding of the interconnectivity and and the meaning of, of collective arts to something that is hyper individualist. And I think it, I think it's interesting that you bring up Black Swan too, because there was the um, controversy around um, Black Swan and um, who did the um, dancing shots. You know, uh, oh, I didn't, I didn't know. So Natalie Portman had a double to do uh, a lot of the uh, ballet dancing shots. It was a a dancer named uh, Sarah Lane. Uh, Mm -hmm. Sarah Lane went on to claim that she she wasn't properly credited, and that the the vast majority of Natalie Portman's uh, dancing scenes were in fact Sarah Sarah Lane, but with uh, like uh, digital face replacement. And stuff like that to make it appear right. to be Natalie Portman. Uh, Aronofsky has gone on to defend his work, saying that the that that's in fact a lie, and the majority of shots are actually Natalie Portman, and that they only had to touch up a few very minor right. shots, you know. And it wasn't even the more complicated things; it was just some some filler that Sarah Lane did. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. like you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know enough about this case to know one way or another it's true, but I do find it interesting that like. A, a a worker not being properly credited in an earlier film is is kind of um part of a foundational title that would go on to lead to mother yeah yeah totally i think that's 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 maybe there's more to this than i thought than this this because i thought i was just sort of spitballing uh, but maybe there is something here that he's kind of moved moved towards a a much more individualistic conception of what it means to be a filmmaker yeah, and one thing which is which is a shame, right? That's a I mean Oh yeah, it's a crying shame. Especially when you compare that to someone like Guillermo del Toro who Yeah, who absolutely. All of Guillermo del Toro's art, you know, like in, I, sh- I shouldn't say all. I shouldn't I shouldn't aggrandize. Um but uh a, a lot of what Guillermo del Toro does are, are are like like each of his films are almost love letters that are interconnected with so much of horror history and so much of like political context and political history and then when he's not working on his horror project he's um 
uh, working on other films and producing other films like he did um, El Paso uh, de la Tortuga, which is about those, I think it was uh, 48 Mexican student protesters who the uh, Mexican government yeah, just yeah, kind yeah. of disappeared, or the cartel disappeared, I think it was. Yeah, in 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 collaboration with Mexican authorities. Yeah, yeah, and and Del Toro um, was uh, he was a producer. I don't know what, to to what extent he was behind the film, but he was nevertheless behind it, which was great. Um, and I think that one thing, well, like I'm always kind of um, a little apprehensive to kind of read in to the personal like mind of of a director or or an, or an artist you know and try and like like psychoanalyze them from afar and understand yeah, the depths in, of their intentional motive. fallacy yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but one th- one thing i do find really interesting about aronofsky's character is is that he he is kind of known for his environmental activism you know noah and mother are both movies that are kind of like tied into um environmentalism you know, he's involved with the Sierra Club. He he's one of the yeah, high-profile yeah. celebrity environmental figures. Yeah, um, absolutely. Ostensibly, there's some donating going on there, although I don't I don't know specifically. But he's a board member of the Sierra Club Foundation, so there's there's something going on there. But I think that where where the limitation comes, and this doesn't require us to like uh, come up come up with Aronofsky's thoughts, is that like the things he does for environmental activism. Are, are are like band-aids to, to a horrible problem you know like like all, all of these things are yeah a hundred percent all these things are good like i'm not i'm not, I'm not gonna say it, it's it's bad that he is so outspoken for environmental cause, causes but but i will say that it's it's fundamentally broken to kind of like uh i suppose like wander the earth bemoaning the fate of the polar bear and but at the same time like being completely unable to articulate the fact that like it's capitalism it's the market that's yeah, doing this. Yeah, I mean, this. this is something that Maxi brought up in our episode on rule, yes. right? This idea that what you get actually then is you get a kind of lifestyle politics where you're not really able to conceive of politics of, as having any kind of systemic or material base. But instead, what you have to do is you have to go, oh, well, maybe if we just made the market more efficient, we wouldn't have these problems. Maybe if we all bought expensive electric hybrid cars maybe the polar bears would be fine and you have to go no because because that isn't the real problem you know and like you say it's a complete inability to connect something like an aesthetic or consumerist choice with the wider material realities of politics right yeah and this is definitely it's definitely reflected in mother you know like like all all of the like like the environmental attitude of this film is kind of very skewed and and very very broken towards this individualistic bent where we're some mm, somehow yeah. in some way we as as individuals could could ever have the power to correct the course here and and what what i mean by yeah. that is, isn't to say that we're powerless because we're in fact the most powerful political body but we only have that power when we engage together when we come together as a class to to unite against yes. the the companies who are deciding short term profits are better than the you know long term fate of the planet, and I think that Aronofsky's film is very decidedly in the camp of you should be recycling more, you should be biking more, you should be I, I don't know donating more of your money to 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 the humane society or something. Which, I mean, yeah. all of those things are good. Like, I'm not going to say any of those things are bad. They're certainly, like, helpful, positive things for the world. If if everybody did more of that, I'm sure it would be a nicer place. 
but but those are those are band-aids on a broken leg you know they're they're doing they're doing well, some what good makes you, but it misses the the overall problem what makes you say that that's where aronofsky's film's politics is in the case of mother i would say that i don't i I don't disagree. I'm just sort of wondering where you where you are kind of shots from. fired, called out. <laughs> no, I, th- I think um, I think in the case of Mother, it's it's most apparent for me when we see the conflict between the the attempt to have this kind of like bucolic uh, pseudo agrarian homestead. You know, in, in the in the few yeah, outside yeah. shots we see, in the few shots where we see out a window, they are kind of like. It is like the the kind of fantasy American dream home where you're in the middle of nowhere in this kind of peaceful, serene, natural, almost frontiersman landscape. Right? Un, un, untouched and unsullied by the hands of humanity except for the farm home. And yeah, when yeah. we're inside the home, everything is very like like I, I would describe this as as some kind of like 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 eco isn't the right word but the house the house and its aesthetic is attempting to exist within a a like environmentally positive framework right like everything is kind of worn but there's no rush to replace it you know everything like like there there, there isn't like a a fridge with an lcd screen that lets you see inside the fridge there there's something that looks a little antique everything everything is older and that's okay because we don't need to be chasing these material needs and when um, mother is painting the house, you know, it's not she, she doesn't have like giant plastic gallon buckets full of mass produced paint. She she's crafted some artisanal paints that she's working with. And, and I think that th- those are the contexts in which this movie reflects kind of this uh, privileged liberal uh, ideology and position towards environmentalism, because it's all about what yeah. you do as a consumer. You know, they as consumers are choosing to forego shiny new things for antiques. They as consumers are choosing to forego popping down to the Home Depot to pick up your paint uh, in, in exchange for like, you know, a hand, handcrafting paint. You know, but but there but there's no yeah, yeah, contextualization yeah. of the massive privilege that it takes to be able to hand make enough paint to paint an entire house and not just an apartment, but a real house. And there's 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 yeah, no yeah. there's no yeah. greater okay. dialogue. Yeah, there. I'm with you. Yeah, I think I think that's an interesting point, um, and it's interesting to hear you kind of flesh it out a little bit more um, directly from the film. Um, I feel like we should maybe talk a little bit more about some of the um, other characters in the film, particularly the first visitors to the house. Ooh, yes, we should. I, I am 100% um, down with this. Especially given what you were talking about in the context of kind of like liberal ideology and the kind of eugenicist position of like a lot of green politics that is very focused on kind of individualism and, and against collectivization. Um, and I was just thinking, why do you think they made, uh, made the character a doctor? Ooh, ooh, that's a really good one. Hmm. I mean, I'm not sure I have a super straightforward answer here, but there is something there is something interesting. I think when you kind of, you know, the the doctor, medical authority, and 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 the kind of well, let's go back to Foucault's birth of the clinic, let's right? The kind of rise of biopower. Mm-hmm is, I think, 
intimately bound up in these kind of regimes of governmentality, of how are you going to deal with climate catastrophe when it inevitably arrives? How are you going to cope with these huge masses of people who are forced to leave their homes and forced to try and go elsewhere? And you're going to do it through... So it's not... I don't think it's a coincidence at all that they decide to use a doctor as a character to emerge at the man's house, at, at his house. Yeah. Um, so there's a, there, I think that that's one of the things that I think is quite uncomfortable about this. Yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is a really good point. I'm currently scrolling through a list of, of all of the character names for, for this. And... I think it's. Is that another? Is that another yeah, plane? That was a car. It's very loud out here. <laughs> there are going to be edits today. Um, I don't know if you think I'm sort of on a hiding to nothing. Here. No, no, no. I, I, I think, I think it's really interesting, especially. Um, hmm. I'm having trouble like piecing together a good follow-up lead to this. Like I'm, I'm scrolling through all, all of the character names right now. Right, and and this is this is one of those movies where no one no one has a real name. They're all they're all given titles. It's so deep. Right? Yeah, and those titles are of course meant to signify how something. I'm already bored of it, but um, of course, mother <laughs> mo- mo- mother mother's uh, uh, name is very obvious. What it's trying to signify? It's nature. It's the cycle of birth. It's self sacrifice. Yada yada yada. Uh, yada, yada, him, yada. him i think is very interestingly named right because because him like the the, the name is aggressive right you know like him yeah, yeah like, totally. like there's some weight behind that and it's not it's not husband it's not father it's him you know like like there's there's a darkness behind that which is something that i really like i just wish that his character kind of personified that a little more but but scrolling scrolling through the wider list of names, I think I think the um, it's interesting how it kind of balances this religious tone. Next, I was about to, I was about to say we're getting onto biblical allegory yes, here, yes. right? Because because you have him who's clearly a substitute for God the Father. Um, you have Mother who's clearly supposed to be an Eve figure. Yeah. Then you have the doctor and his and his uh, wife, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm-hmm. And then you have Cain and Abel, their two yep. sons. Uh, and then it's sort of like the allegory loses its coherence, right? And you kind of stumble into like, well, it it, it it's just a kind of wild carnivalesque spectacle. I I honestly which culminates. It, in a really crass punchline. I on, I honestly think that it loses its allegorical sense with mother. You know, because mother mother isn't just the the Eve figure, she's also the Virgin Mary. You know, like the yeah. uh Aronofsky rolled together the 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 two big name women of the Bible into one character. And Yeah, so no wonder no wonder the allegory can't hold yeah, up. Yeah, right? because she 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 does give birth to a savior who is then sacrificed for the sins of an unworthy population. Who literally consume Yeah, who eat of the flesh. Yeah. And and I think that that, that 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 already you're mixing your metaphors here, right? When you when you conflate Eve and the Virgin Mary as two kind of symbolic figures. And it me it means that like 
interpreting this film is just a mess. Yeah. Right? It's just a mess. Especially along because, biblical lines. Because because once you set up an allegory, what you need is you need a kind of hermeneutic frame that's stable enough for it to make sense when you transplant it or kind of take take the sim- symbolism outside of the text. Mm-hmm. I mean, the classic allegory is um, Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, yeah. right? Because the symbolism within the text actually makes it explicit the ways in which you're supposed to decode Super it. Super explicit. Why, Super explicit. But this is why this is why um, this is why Lewis's friend Tolkien always said that he didn't didn't like allegory precisely because it depended upon this kind of rigid interpretive framework for it for it to stay coherent. Mm-hmm. And so when you kind of don't pay any attention to the symbology that you're working with, and you just go, "Oh well, this will work." Um, no wonder what you end up with is a kind of unfocused, just like massive garbage <laughs> cool. but um, i think that i think you you could do something incredibly interesting and people probably have uh comparing contrasting and conflating the characters of even the virgin mary right like i think i think that there there's a lot of interesting parallels between their two characters in terms of the, the bible as as a narrative and and biblical retelling as narrative I think that yeah, how, yeah, how they interact, but, but this but, film like Darren Aronofsky can't do yeah. that, <laughs> like, like because Darren because Darren doesn't seem to understand the Bible like <laughs> at all. And maybe and maybe this is something you want to go into a, a, a little bit more. Like I understand the, that this is this is one of your many uh, purviews as a researcher. Like in, in I guess uh, in your estimation. As as someone who kind of has pursued these ends, how does Mother's character kind of drop the ball as being either allegory or metaphor? Well, well, this is the thing. It can't decide which one it wants to be. And I think that's that's a pretty substantial problem. Because if you want to tell... If you want an environmental eco-allegory... Then you could do that, and actually, I think that's what uh, probably about the first hour of the film tries to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sets up this kind of living uh, space in which kind of nature and culture are in in, in harmony. You know, she feels the heartbeat of the mm-hmm. wood in the walls. You know, there's something going on there that's sort of. I mean, it's not good, but but it makes sense, right? It's it's coherent. But when we get into the kind of metaphoric second half, where he collapses the the biblical allegory down into kind of a series of basically flashcards yeah. or or sequences, the whole thing becomes much looser and much harder to interpret. Like it is not a coincidence that like most people go looking for explanations for the end, because actually the first half of the film makes sense. You know, it works. Again, I don't think it's I don't think it's all that good, but it, it, it hangs together and it, it's making a coherent point. But when you when you suddenly start throwing in just like images and spectacle and noise and weird visuals and, and none of it is keeping track of the kind of symbolic language and, and uh, sources that the first half of the film is drawing from, then it, 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 that's when it loses me. Absolutely, and I think I think um, you bring up a really good point there because, like, the, the latter half of the film is my favorite half because it brings in 
a bunch of spectacle and noise and irritating and confusing visuals. But you're absolutely right that it, it loses track of what it's trying to say for that noise. And it reminds me of another horror film. Um, one second while I look up the guy who made its name. Loading. This is, this is one of the all-time creepiest films ever made. Honestly disturbing. Super messed up. 1990s begotten by um, uh, director and writer E. Elias Marij. And yep. uh, begotten is an incredibly, aggressively strange film. It is, it is deeply disturbing. It, it is not afraid to, to show you hyper-violent Hyper abstracted and hyper sexualized imagery. It is. Uh, Ash, are you just working up the courage to ask when can we do an episode? Oh, I mean, on we're this? gonna have to watch Begotten at some point, you know. But, but, but one day, one day in the future, we will watch Begotten because this movie, this movie is awesomely disturbing. But um, what what then? Like Begotten is also an allegory for kind of our relationship with nature, nihilism, and and kind of these these biblical allegorical overtones but like like the characters the characters are mother earth you know uh god killing himself is a character's name uh right. son, son of earth <laughs> flesh on bone and and, and the okay, movie yep. is like it's like all high contrast black and white really disturbing costuming like but but that, that movie keeps track of its metaphors right Mahij Mahij knew what um he he wanted to do what what he what he wanted to say with this piece and so having having this this intense spectacle doesn't hinder this film and it in fact allows yeah, the message totally. to come through you can you can use exaggerated and disturbing imagery as long as you're very clear on what the kind of symbology and thematic impetus and um sources for all of that imagery mm -hmm. are and how to make it all come together right and i actually think that i i honestly i like the second half of the film more as well but like like i said there's a reason that most people go looking for explanations yeah. for that last half of the film because that's the bit where it st all starts to become really unclear and it isn't like met i've said this repeatedly but metaphors have an, have a, an excessive amount of meaning mm -hmm. within them which means you can read a metaphoric text on a multiple number of levels, often levels which are in contradiction with yes. one another. I mean, Jameson talks about this in um, The Political Unconscious, right? It's through historical materialism that we can unite uh, the symbolic with the historical and come up with a kind of concrete story to tell about ourselves. But if you're going to tell, start with an allegory, which has a very strict interpretive framework baked into mm -hmm. it, and then go into these wild, contradictory, disturbing, imagistic metaphors, nothing works. It, it just doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that this is probably the single big, biggest hindrance of this film, is, is that, that that latter half does collapse in favor of spectacle. And that... I mean, I mean, it's very spectacular. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> to say the but, least, it is spectacular in in a literal sense. The problem, the problem becomes that like not only does does like because 
I mean, thinking after thinking about this, I do think that he kind of made the film with good intentions. I think he's a classic, you know, American Hollywood liberal. I do think he is sincerely concerned about these issues that he's trying to explore. But I also don't think he has a politics that has any kind of material grasp yeah. upon where all of this stuff comes yeah, it's, from. It's, and so all, it's it's no surprise that the most reactionary and troubling bits of the film are also where he starts letting go of the kind of slow build, our allegorical symbolism of the first half mm-hmm. and lapses into the kind of second tier Lars von Trier weirdness of the last uh, act, uh, the second half of act two and act three. Yeah, yeah. And the, um, like, like the lack of a historical materialism, the lack of like, like even, even to not like, like go go that far into like leftist theory like the lack of any kind of substantive political critique causes yeah causes this latter half of the movie to to just to just completely decay and oh my god i lost my point i had a point and now oh okay points back cool editing that out (laughs) (laughs) no but like so, so yeah the lack of historical materialism or the, or the lack of even even any kind of of left of center principled critique, like even even like an Ezra Klein cap and trade critique doesn't exist in this film, right? Yeah, I mean, is he is he critiquing the vacuity of like media with the Kristen Wiig's publicist character? Mm-hmm. Is he critiquing is he critiquing the myth of the auteur with that kind of cult of devotion? Is he critiquing religion? Is he trying to make an environmentalist point? Is he trying to make a kind of semi Like, you know, it's completely confused. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the byproducts of that complete confusion is that because, because the text of the film can only kind of gesture vaguely towards a problem, but is wholly unable to articulate not only the cause of the problem, but any meaningful solution... The only meaningful uh, solution in the wake of that vacuum is just this despotic nihilism. Like yeah, absolutely, you start again. You start again. Yeah, and then, and then, and then, like, like, like a vision of a prelapsarian past. Right. The only thing we can do is try and go back to when things were good. Yes, absolutely. But, but like you know, things start as, again. As the cycle of this again. movie shows, there is no, things were never yeah. good. And there's no way of changing things. We can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we have no we have no recourse here except to repeat indefinitely a cycle that we cannot even articulate. And that 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 for me yes, is exactly. is kind of like the cornerstone of what really brings down this movie as a text. Yeah, I think I think that's what makes it so dis- dispiriting, mm-hmm. right? Because not only does he not accept the ways in which um the political implications of this film can be deeply reactionary, um but there is no hope. Yeah. There there is no there is there's not even the kind of necessary dialectical tension between like understanding just how truly terrible the current situation is whilst refusing to foreclose the possibility of something yeah. new. All we get is we get put right back to the beginning. Yeah, yeah, no, nothing nothing ventured, nothing lost <laughs> is is kind of the closing ethos of this film. Yes, absolutely. You know, uh, you don't you don't gain anything. The only one who loses anything gets gets brought back to lose it all over right? again. Right, and, and like the even great, the great man, the great man doesn't learn. The great man 
uh, suffers and creates. That's all he's capable of doing. He isn't capable of growth. He isn't capable of change. He isn't capable of actually stop, you know, stopping being such an egotistical jerk. Right. And if we're, if we're supposed to read him as as kind of like this this critique of either either the the authority of of a of a god or or perhaps even authority more broadly. The, the the critique ultimately falls flat on its face because at the close of the movie we don't we don't learn anything nothing changes through, through throughout this yeah film. how can how can how can it be a critique because the, it, there is no possibility of yeah. change there's no possibility of change there's no possibility of that critique meaning yeah. anything all, all it becomes is kind of like sound and fury signifying nothing mm-hmm. yeah yeah to- totally like like this movie. This, this movie kind of reminds me of like 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 the pseudo adage where it's like you tell someone corporations are screwing them over and that's something we can all universally agree on, but then what? You know, like we 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 know yeah, that there's absolutely we know that there's a problem with authority, but the movie can't really engage with it and it can't really engage with it on 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 any of these levels, especially because of, you know at that final that final sequence, right? Yeah, because you can't act collectively because. Collectively, people are violent, right, yeah, people, uh, prone to being deluded, the, 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 prone to being selfish and uh, avaricious, once, once, prone to coming and destroying your perfect shrine. Once the um, once the crowds really start showing up after after it's beyond just the fans and the party scene, right? Once once it becomes really disastrous, all of the character names are like refugee one, refugee G two, sex slave, whoremonger. Yeah. Like, like it becomes like, like any crowd above a party is, is immediately like, like the, this extremist right-wing fear mongering over climate refugees. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's something this film waltzes into some very kind of troubling waters where it goes, yep, yep. There's going to be, there's going to be this kind of environmental catastrophe is going to cause huge amounts of population movement and displacement. And really, the only thing we can do is kind of militarize and and see how many of them we can right, kill. and not even like because because a mass climate catastrophe that displaces billions of people living in coastal cities is going to be an incredibly difficult challenge to face, right? Yeah, parts absolutely. of that challenge are, and, are going to and we and we can already see how it's unfolding, right? We can already see the kind of fortress Europe, mm-hmm. you know, where there are where there are boatloads of. of uh, refugees washing up on up on the shores of southern Italy. Yeah, I was I was saying places like all... places like Greece are since they're the the nexus of this. They've been quickly and thoroughly financially subordinated to the rest of Europe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if he's right, if Darren Aronofsky's vision of the future is is true, then it's something that has to be fought against with. Every single fiber of our being. And so, so, so that's what that's what I think that I think that um what I was getting at is that Darren Aronofsky's vision of the future, re the the refugee hordes and mother, isn't isn't true, right? Because when 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 like you you can see this at the American border when these refugees are coming from Central America up up to America, they're not like hordes of like sex slave one, sex slave two, whoremonger one. You know, like they're they're not Darren Aronofsky's cast of like the most despotic and evil people you can imagine. 
They're they're tired yeah. and hungry people who have fled nightmarish conditions that anyone in America is likely unable to fully appreciate. And and they are weary and they are looking for shelter. Right? Aronofsky yeah, presents I'm... a vision detached from reality. This is the right wing fear mongering vision of what refugees are. You know, this isn't the reality why... of what refugees are. This is why the kind of leftist demand of like no nations, no borders. It's not just utopian nonsense. Yeah. Right? Because we know what borders are. Borders are militarized instruments of violence which are designed to kill the vulnerable. You know, to kill off... And, and if you accept the kind of troubling implications of this environmentalist politics that says, actually, there are too many people, you would look at that and go, well, you know, can't make an omelet without breaking yeah. a few eggs. And, and that's where you kind of get to see the true kind of scope of just how reactionary the politics in, at play here are. Yeah, and so, something that just occurred to me, too, is that the film doesn't even... I mean, like, this is, is going to be a huge surprise given the conversation we've been having. <laughs> but the, um, the, film, the film doesn't even really begin to acknowledge the, the true kind of nature of the, like, quote-unquote refugee crisis, right? Yeah. Like... You know, as, as I was saying, like it envisions the refugees as as essentially terrorists, you know, coming coming to steal yeah. your women and all that. And it doesn't acknowledge the fact that like the the reason these people have to be refugees is directly tied to to the economic and political systems that benefit the people of Europe and the United States and Canada and Australia and all of the quote unquote first world nations caused the refugee crisis. Like it, it's it's our economic meddling, it's our political meddling. That keeps the the dictatorships, that keeps the economic uh, suppression flowing, and the, the film as a text doesn't engage with that. It just kind of depicts these people as like, you know, slavering hordes that are destroying shit and dirty and confused, and and completely detached from the fact that that within a broader context, it would be mother and him that are to to some modicum responsible. <laughs> is to affirm, I think what's important is to affirm the kind of hollowness of this politics to accept that there are actually things that, you know, we should be concerned about, that there are kind of environmental problems that need to be talked about honestly in film, and film is a great way of doing that. Yeah. Um, but also that, like, there has to be some degree of, of collectivity, you know, and it isn't the fault, the blame should not be... Uh, so violently inflicted upon the kind of faceless mass that this film treats with nothing but contempt, but should be directed at those uh, forces which have created such a mass, which have created such a mass movement of people. Yeah, and one of the, one of the other things that uh, just kind of pops to my mind is that um, a while back, uh, Philosophy Tube, and for our listeners who don't listen, Philosophy Tube is a uh, YouTube channel. Uh, ran ran by a charismatic and attractive uh, British person who who does f philosophical and political content. Ten out of ten, great stuff. Shout out to yes. Ollie. But um, one one of um Ollie's videos um and this was a while back now, but not too long. It was it was it was essentially a critique of not just the text of posting videos on YouTube, but but also the kind of greater uh, political and economic landscape in which YouTube sits and that, that these, these critiques of, of YouTube necessarily require interaction with that. And I think that, you know, mother, yes. mother very troublingly falls into the same place, right? 
Because yeah, you know, absolutely. Mother, mother's depiction of like this Malthusian nightmare future exists within a greater context, where where this film made giant bags of money for corporate boards of directors and and actors and directors who are already ludicrous, ludicrously wealthy, while while severely underpaying a, a lot of uh, workers that did tons of labor that was absolutely necessary to keep this project together. Arguably more so than the yeah. people who made tons of money. And not to mention the fact that, you know, what, what is this movie's interaction with, you know, refugees and the refugee crisis outside of demonizing it and profiting off of that demonization? Um, yeah, which is the classic response to, of, of capitalism to any sustained crisis, right? You, you demonize those who were the most um, exploited by the crisis and you sell the kind of cure, in inverted yeah. commas, on as the new product. Yep. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay, stay spooky. spooky.